come back Your dreams were your ticket out Welcome back To that same old place that you laughed about Well, the names have all changed since you hung around But those dreams have remained and they've turned around Who'd have thought they'd lead ya? Who'd have thought they'd lead ya? Watermark Golf Media. In a world where talk is cheap, someone should be paying you to listen to this podcast. It's the Lip Outs Podcast with your host, golf course architect, author, and former looper for the llama, Nathan Crace. And now, from deep within the recesses of the basement beneath the studio at Watermark Golf Media, the man of the hour, the tower of power, too sweet to be sour, make you say, woo, like Jerry Clower. Ladies and gentlemen, Nathan Crace. Welcome back, indeed. It is great to be back in the studio here at Watermark Golf Media. Been way, way too long since our last episode of the Lip Outs podcast, and things are a little different this go-around. Uh, big thanks, first of all, to everyone who asked about the podcast and, and where we have been for so long. Uh, I'll get into that in just a little bit. Uh, but first of all, we're trying a new format. Uh, we'll have a co-host for the first half of the show, well, really for the entire show, but for the first half, uh, my co-host and I will kind of just talk about a few things in the news, uh, talk about golf in general. And that co-host is Landon Petty. Landon, you there? I, I am. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to this. I kind of got a little fit going forward. So uh, is that, that appropriate? or? Uh... That's absolutely appropriate. Landon is in our, uh, our Florida office, um, so to speak. Uh, now with the pandemic and everybody uh, communicating via Zoom and Skype and, and what have you, WebEx, we've got Landon on the line uh, via Skype from Florida. Landon and I, for those of you who don't know, and I'm going to assume that's the vast majority of people listening, we've been friends for, I don't know, 20, 25 years, something like that. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. 1997, I think is when we met first time. Yeah, so. Well, I went to public school, but I think that's 23 years. So that's, um, <laughs> that's, that is correct. That's crazy, that correct. but that's hard to believe. But uh, Landon was a long time, uh, he was a writer and editor and, and publisher of a large a uh, very widely circulated and widely read regional golf publication in the Southeast for, for years. Uh, then he went on to become the uh, a director at a large uh, private, uh, I guess semi-private resort club in the Southeast. And right. um, <clears throat> so anyway, we were talking about the podcast. And actually, Landon and I have been talking about the podcast from 
the very early stages back in late 2018, uh, when we very first started talking about the Lip Outs podcast, over the last month or so, and started talking about bringing it back, I said, you know, why don't we sit down, let's let's co-host it, as though we were just sitting around the living room and talking about things and, and just kind of riff on things like we normally do. So we're going to try this out. I think it's going to work pretty good. <laughs> you know, you, this will probably be a lot better than our idea, what, about a year ago, we were going to do a, a YouTube series where we went around and played golf and i think the idea was to get you really drunk and see what you shot during which would probably be probably be better than what i would shoot sober uh, <laughs> most of the time but uh yeah it's really uh that, that would be a time a fun yet time consuming <laughs> scenario but uh we, we've had a lot of conversations over the years about the best way to bestow our the masses and uh, it looks like this might be the best one uh, you mentioned earlier me being in the florida office uh, we, uh, after a lifelong Louisiana resident, yeah, we moved to the Panhandle um, earlier this year. And in the process of moving, I uncovered uh, uh, one of my treasures. I found a signed, an autographed copy of Lip Out's The Book. So wow. it really got me thinking about that. Uh, yeah, if, if you remember, I actually wrote the foreword. That's right. Uh, in that, it probably the, I, I don't, I'm not sure, but it's probably the best writing in the whole thing, but it was still a pretty good book um, yeah, overall. So it's, it would be a toss-up um, between the forward and the copyright page. A table of contents? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. It was, it was really a strong a, table of contents. It reminded me of, of, uh, of all those articles that you wrote over the years for the magazine. So there's uh, <laughs> pretty neat flashbacks. That I emailed to you at 11.30 p.m. because you had to have them before midnight? You know, if you if you remember, a lot of times they were via fax, and we had to oh, retype right. them into <laughs> uh, right. an antiquated <laughs> with the magazine. We actually were gluing, we were printing uh, copy on a certain type of paper with a certain type of printer, and then we actually had a machine through, uh, and it would wax, it would put wax on the back of it, and then you would cut it with an exacto knife and physically lay the page out, and then they would take a picture of it and then make a plate and the film, just a, a process that's long since been dead, but it, it makes me feel pretty, pretty old <laughs> thinking about how we used to do that. Well, if it um, makes you feel any better, that's how I put this podcast together. Uh, we just <laughs> tape and wax everything together. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. funny you mentioned that. I, I can remember, you know, my youngest son is now 14, and this had to have been six to eight years ago. So let's just say he was seven, and we were at the airport in Birmingham, Alabama, waiting on a Southwest flight to Disney World. Oh, at least and, you were going somewhere fun because, you know, yeah. there, there's, no, there's not a lot to do in the, uh, the Birmingham airport. Uh, not in the best. airport. No, Birmingham, yeah. the city is fine, but the airport itself was rather boring and mundane. But the, there, were a, there was a bank of three what used to be pay phones. You know, and it's just, it was just the shell of the payphone. There was no phone in it anymore. And uh, he came over and said, what is that? And I said, well, those used to be payphones. You actually put a quarter in the phone and you would get in touch with somebody and that's how you would talk instead of having a phone in your pocket. And he just went, huh. And he jumped on his hoverboard and floated away. But the, uh, <laughs> it, it is crazy how much technology really, I mean, a Three. totally foreign concept. My, mine is 17. A totally foreign concept. Absolutely insane. As well, it, it, it used to be a dime. And, and I assume, I assume when they first came out, they were probably cheaper than that. A nickel, a penny, I'm not sure. But uh, I remember when payphones switched from a dime to a quarter. And I remember thinking, wow, that's, uh, 
That's interesting. Little did I know. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, just talking about the move a minute ago when we were moving out of the old office. Uh, I found a cell phone bill that I had that was 10 or 15 years old, probably. It was you know, shortly after I kind of went out on my own. So that's been. Oh, those were those that's were been fun. a while. Those it, were exciting. It, with the roaming, with out of area roaming fees, the bill was $600. For a month. Oh yeah, it, 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 it read like uh, read like uh, instructions on how to install your stereo from the late '80s. You couldn't decipher it, and you just knew you were getting hammered, no matter what oh. you did. Uh, I remember mine. You know, when they first it, there was a time when the continued promotions were coming out, and for a period, my carrier had a promotion where the first minute, so the first sixty seconds of an incoming call were free. So it was amazing how much you could communicate with somebody in 60 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the old you know? joke where um, you call call home collect, and they said, this is the operator. You have a call from, hey, mom, send me 20 bucks amount of money, and then they hang up <laughs> exactly real quick. The same. Exactly the same. Exactly so. the same. But, uh, yeah, we've dated ourselves pretty well here, so that means uh, everybody under the age of 30 just turned us off. <laughs> so uh, maybe we should uh, talk about something relevant. Uh, yeah, why don't if, we do if that? such a thing exists. Well, first of all, I'll tell you what's relevant. Let me do a live read. You know, Christmas is just around the corner. It'll be here before you know it. I mean, this is, as we record this, this is November 9th. So what to get for the golfer on your list or for yourself if uh, your significant other doesn't mind? Uh, Well, if you want something unique, you want something bespoke, which for those of you who went to public school like I did means custom made, then you look no further than your name, of course, Dot com. That's your name, of course, dot com, where you can get someone's name designed into a golf course. Uh, it has that old uh, turn of the century golden age feel to it. Uh, create a blueprint and you can get an eight by 10 or a 25, 24 by 30, both suitable for framing. Both look great. And for a limited time, there is a special Christmas holiday promotion. If you go to my Twitter account at Lipouts, L-I-P-O-U-T-S, you can find it there. We'll also repost it on the Lipouts podcast Twitter feed at yournameofcourse.com. Makes a great, great Christmas gift. Don't miss out and leave plenty of time for delivery because again, it takes a couple of weeks to get these made and we're not that far from Christmas. I think you're pretty familiar with the uh, Your Name of Course concept. These things are great. It is the neatest deal. It's a it's a really uh, unique piece of art, uh, and and it's one of those things where you look at it, and you don't initially know exactly what it is. It's almost like you kind of have to you have to see. You know, remember those things that came out where you have to stare at it to kind of yeah. see. And this is yeah. a little bit like that, you know. And, yeah. and uh, I, but uh, of course, you made one for uh, for my son. And uh, he loves it, and it's hanging in his room. And uh, it's it's a really unique piece. Uh, it's one of those things where everybody asks that question, you know, what do you get for it? It's hard to buy for golfers, right? You know, you, if you're a golfer and you're serious about what you want, it's difficult. I mean, we always used to laugh about the hilarious uh, gifts that you would get from family members that know you're a golfer. Uh, you know, right. uh, And, uh, you know, the, the custom-made set of iron covers. and you know, real- <laughs> Or the little clicker that where you can keep up with your strokes. Right. Yeah. The, and the multi, everybody has a different multi tool, you know, one that, uh, you know, takes your blood pressure and another one that marks the ball at the same time. So all stuff that, you know, you smile and, uh, hand it off and goes in a drawer and you never touch it again, but this is a neat, a neat piece. And, uh, I think, uh, if you go to the website, you'll be able to see some examples of it. Yeah. There's it a, really, uh, 
actually one at the top of the page that uh, I did for a for a certain Mr. Uh, Jack Nicholas that uh, was really neat. We he actually used his signature instead of just the the name Jack. So that that was kind of neat the way that worked out. But anyway, again, that's your name of course dot com, and we'll post that uh, coupon code on the Twitter feed for the Lipouts Podcast. That's at Lipouts Podcast. So check in for that. Okay, coming up in the hey, second half quick. of the yeah yeah. I just want to mention, you mentioned Jack Nicholas, and I thought this was really great, and I've been looking for a way to, to, to plug this, but my son's golf team, district championship this year, and one of their players qualified for a state championship, and interestingly enough, uh, it was last week, and he was paired with Jack Nicholas's grandson. So you actually got to play the entire round with Jack Nicholas's grandson, and then with the Golden Bear himself in the golf cart shadowing them got some great pictures with them i mean what a neat experience this is a kid that's been to my house many times right um and a good friend of my son so it was a, it was a really neat uh, neat experience for him and it's good to see that 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 jack's out there doing that you know you just think he's going to be here forever but you don't think about you know that that uh, God, i don't even really think i know how old jack nicholas is do you i mean off the top of your head uh, he, he's closing in on 80 if he's not there already i think he's 78 yeah so like so, but uh, yeah, but I just thought that was neat. I thought that was a, a pretty cool thing. You know, thinking back to when I was 17, that would be the simultaneously coolest and most terrifying thing to ever happen to me in my life because, you know, every every shot I'm standing over, I'm turning around and Jack Nicholas is sitting there watching. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I don't the, know that yeah. I could pull the club back. I, I'm with you 100%. So, uh, but anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off. Let's, let's no, that's a, great, so. that's a great story. So, um, yeah. <clears throat> coming up in the second half of the show, uh, after our after a commercial break that we'll be taking here in maybe 10, 15 minutes or so, our guest, Billy Fuller, will be here. Now, Billy is a golf course architect, a fellow ASGCA member, the American Society of Golf Course Architects. Uh, Billy actually worked for years ago for Bob Cup, um, who was sort of my de facto mentor years ago at a, at a, at a uh, younger age for me. And, and of course, Bob, uh, unfortunately, passed away um, back in... Oh, it's been maybe four or five years ago now, sadly. It's just crazy how time flies, but gone way too soon. But Billy will be with us not to discuss golf course architecture, but he was actually the golf course superintendent at Augusta National back in the uh, mid-'80s. So he's seen a lot of things, and I wanted to get his take on what a Masters in the fall might be like. So be sure to hang around for that. And uh, before we get into that, we will have what we are calling chip-ins. Now, these are just some some hot topics that we've pulled from the news uh, that we want to discuss so maybe two or three minutes and Landon and I are just going to kind of riff on and we may bring them back up with Billy later on uh, when he's on with us but first of all since we're talking about the Masters Landon what about the defending champion this year Tiger Woods well you can never you can never count Tiger out you just don't know I mean he uh, I personally was very surprised when he pulled it off last year. It's just, uh, you know, all the things that he has going against him, um, and, and, and they're not complicated things, but the multitude of, you know, setbacks from injuries, uh, the fact that he's, you know, he, he's the age that he is, which is hilarious that we think about that as being, you know, old. Uh, right. right. And, and, right. and these young guys, uh, just the way they hit the ball and, and so forth and so on, it really, um, I was I was amazed, but you get you can't count him out. Uh, you, he he. This has been such a bizarre year for so many reasons, and this is going to be an interesting Masters. I mean, here in the fall, 
and uh, no patrons. I mean, you got all these moving parts that uh, for somebody like Tiger, whose mind is uh, is is no doubt a focused steel trap, when he gets in these situations, he could be extremely dangerous uh, for the rest of the field. No, I agree. So, I, I'm just I did a uh, um, oh, it's called behind the architectural curtain. And it's, they ask a few different golf course architects to answer a handful of questions about an upcoming major. And, of course, with the Masters coming up, they asked a few of us. And one of the questions was about about it being in the fall. And I mentioned, you know, did a little quick research. And in the fall this time of year versus April in Augusta, it's roughly 10 degrees cooler. You know, of course, the daylight hours are shorter, but it's roughly 10 degrees cooler. And I wonder if that might not, especially in the mornings, if that might not have a little impact on Tiger with his back. If he, you know, for those of us who have had issues playing golf, you know, it's always a little stiffer in the morning. It's a little worse when it's cool and that type of thing. I mean, do you think any consideration for that? I think it's possible. I mean, sure, it could be a little bit. But, you know, in April, you'll have some really you know, uh, times, I mean, I've seen some times when these guys are, are, you know, running into the pro shop to buy a sweater because it's uh, right. a little bit cooler than they thought it was going to be. So, you know, a lot of golf courses around this country, uh, you, you would really feel confident that they were going to play dramatically different in the fall than in the spring. But I don't think this is one of those animals. I think Augusta national is such a fine tuned, uh, machine, for lack of a better term, that you know you're going to see a very similar um, uh, golf course that you would see. Uh, it may not have the color, you know, the, from the azaleas and things like that, uh, which I think is going to give it a completely different look. So uh, I also think it's going to be really see the golf course with no patrons, without the stands. The holes different. I mean, Nathan, you know this. I had the opportunity to play Augusta National as a guest of a member uh, in 2008 uh, in February. And uh, a lot of that stuff had not been put up. So you're playing the golf course, you know, like it's supposed to be played or obviously wise, but uh, it looks completely different. It's got a different feel. It's got a totally different vibe. And I think uh, it's going to be a real treat for everybody watching on TV I feel awful for those people that don't get to go and attend because it, it's a it's such a well attended event and 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 it really uh, I also feel bad because uh, I read somewhere where it's in excess of a hundred million dollars in in loss to the local economy which is which is tough tough in an already tough year uh, but uh, it, it's just it's uh, but it's going to be an interesting venue in that sense. Oh no doubt you know I, I wonder. Because obviously he won in April of 2019, so we're now what four, five to eleven, you know, seventeen, nine, eighteen, nineteen months from uh, the previous Masters. If he's the longest-serving Masters champion, um, <laughs> very well, maybe. I, I know that it seems like they had a couple maybe during World War II where they didn't have the tournament. I, so that that's uh, familiar to me, but I don't. I, I would be. I'd be speaking out of turn because I don't know exactly. But, yeah, uh, I will get our crack research team on that. Uh, I and was about to say, don't we have a production we'll assistant get, that could look that up for us right we'll now? Get a, we'll get an answer on the other side <laughs> of the break. Um, you talked about the galleries, and that that is our the next uh, chip-in. One of the things that, of course, Augusta is known for, and if you've ever been on site, if you've never been on site, for those of you who've, who haven't had the opportunity to go, you don't realize how hilly the golf course is until you've been there 
And there my, is not <laughs> a flat spot on that golf course except on the tees. And I, it, I, I, I kid you not. And and you kind of you would swear that if you stood on the front edge of the number ten tee box. Now this is the members' tee box, so it's a little up. And you just tossed the ball underhand that would roll to 150 yards. It's such a dramatic. It's <laughs> well, crazy. You no, know? You're, you're absolutely. Look, you, when I was there in 2014, I guess it was, we came in from uh, Berkman's place back there behind 13 Green. And you kind of pop out of this trail out of the trees. And you're right there at 13 Green, 14 T. Then we kind of walked down 13 and around 12 and 11. And we walked up number 10 toward the clubhouse. Yeah. By the time we it's got all- up to the tee, I, I had to sit down. I mean, I just I had to take a break. I had to call a paramedic. I, I just I was out of breath just from walking back up that hill. You're right. You don't. The TV just cannot capture it. So, the you have these hollows and and valleys, and it was all surrounded by the pine trees. And when you hear a roar on the other end of the golf course, and it literally just comes up through there like a wave, like a like a tidal wave, and you're not going to have that this year. You know, that that takes away from what is a part of the Masters because there are no galleries. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, especially on the back nine uh, where, you know, right there at uh, 15, uh, 15, 16, uh, 17T, you know, it's really a lot of, uh, lot of activity in that one area. Uh, and you can really hear, you know, how, how it, it, it makes I've attended the golf course. I got to play the golf course in 08, but I've, I've attended as a patron um, a couple of different times. And uh, it's really it's really interesting because you will be in a spot and you will hear a roar. And when you find out where that, that noise you know, emanated from, it's on the other side of the property. And, and it really, it, the way that that sound kind of moves through there. So, yeah, it's going to be really different uh, for it to be. It's going to be, I don't know, almost eerily quiet. And, and it almost has a reverence anyway. I told somebody when I when I played there, I'm standing in the fairway on the uh, on the first hole, and I felt like I was swinging a golf club in church, and I was looking around, you know, worried <laughs> I was in trouble, right? You know, so um, it's going to be interesting. It really will. Well, maybe they can do like the NFL, and they can pump in fake crowd noise like they've been doing with the games. Um, it is this year. I, I I was watching football on Saturday uh, with a friend of mine watching college football, and there was a controversial play. Uh, it was the USC game, so they're in California, so nobody's in the stadium, and we right. kept talking about how nobody was in the state. Controversial play, and then there was a big boo, and my buddy looked at me and he said, "I guess they're piping in booing sounds," and I said. <laughs> Wow, I didn't even think about that, you know. So, yeah. um, I, but I would, I would have to say, uh, I would, I, I would go out on a limb and say they are not going to pump in artificial crowd noise at Augusta National. Well, maybe uh, I not. Think that would maybe for those of us watching at home. <laughs> how about that? Maybe, not big maybe, mobile speakers maybe, maybe out on so, the uh, out on the golf course itself, but I, I would be surprised. That's that's uh, that's probably the purest golf environment on the on the planet. So I would I would I would say no, but it would it would be neat. It would be interesting. And and for those of you who haven't been, if you ever do get a chance to go, even for a practice run, I mean you you've got to go. It's just you will walk around in awe just at how the history and how pristine everything is. Um, and of course, you know, as a golf course architect, sometimes that 
causes issues with clients who they watch the Masters and they they want their golf course to look like the Masters, but you know, <laughs> for ninety nine out of hundred courses, that's not realistic. And this actually sound may sound odd, but uh, if it is your first time, I would encourage you to go during a as opposed to an actual round. You can actually get a little closer. Uh, they're a little bit, um, um, for lack of a better term, a little bit looser with uh, cameras and things like that. So you can actually uh, really get to see a lot of the players up close and a lot of the golf course during the practice rounds. It gets it gets uh, pretty reverent and, and, and serious uh, on Thursday morning. Now, that's a great point. During the practice rounds, of course, no phones are allowed anytime. But during the practice rounds, they will allow you to take a small camera uh, and, and take pictures during the practice round, or, or they did back in 2014, the last time I was there. So, um, Speaking of things that have changed at Augusta, Bryson DeChambeau, uh, reigning U.S. Open champion and the current favorite to win the Masters, posted uh, on his, I guess it was Instagram, it was some, some social media channel, but he posted on, uh, I think it was Instagram, yes, it was Instagram, back on October 23rd, and said that, uh, quote, first time over 400, uh, where he had a picture, uh, not even the 48-inch driver. He hit a ball with his driver on the fly, 403.1 yards. Carry, that's not roll. That's carry with a ball speed of 211 miles per hour. Now, surely that's going to have some impact on the way the game is played. And I I believe it had a hang time of just over eight seconds, which is... That's forever. That's 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 hard to believe, you know. And um, it's it's got to have um, some impact. Uh, you know, there's a lot of holes out. I mean, for example, number eleven. I mean, five. Even though it does play downhill and it is a very dangerous shot, but uh, it's a five hundred and five yard par four. You know, coming out of a shoot, uh, and, and you can really step on it and still have a long iron in there. So, I mean, we're talking about a scenario where he could be hitting driver, you know, flips. That's just hard to wrap your mind around on a hole like that. So it's definitely going to have uh, something, you know, some impact. Question is, is he, does he hit it straight or does he hit it, you know, in play? Cause you can put yourself, you know, in, in some precarious situations as we've all seen. Um, he's going to, he, he's probably not going to be hitting driver on a number of holes, uh, you know, hitting it that far. Uh, which is also a change, you know, it, it's something very interesting, but uh, number five, for example, it's going to be a really much easier hole if you're throwing uh, an eight or nine iron in there, as opposed to coming in there with a four or five iron. So do you, so. do you just dry out the greens even more? And, and is that the only defense or I guess what they see what he does in the first uh, round or, I mean, how know, do you, how do you defend against so that? Good. They're so good and they're so fast and, and, you know, they're wrong spot on those greens. And it's another thing that the TV doesn't, doesn't do justice, but you, you, you may very well have the hole at your back, you know, because of the, of the movement of that putt. So, uh, you know, just because he hits it far, uh, that does not necessarily mean that, uh, he's going to have a, a tremendous advantage. I've always said that people with a short game, you know, at a place like that, uh, you know, for example, Kevin Kisner, you know, Kisner happens to be a personal friend of a really good friend of mine, and he's been practicing. Uh, he actually had something on his Instagram feed 
uh, yesterday, uh, strolling through the Georgia Pines, I think is what he said, uh, and, uh, practicing at Augusta. And somebody that can putt the lights out and uh, has a really solid short game is, is really, uh, in my opinion, has an advantage. I mean, you go back to when Zach Johnson won, uh, you know, he laid up on every single par five. Well, that, you know, Bryson DeChambeau does not speak layup. He, that, that's a foreign language to him. So um, it, it's going to be it's going to be fun to watch. But uh, I, I don't know that it's going to give him an overwhelming advantage. But I think it'll certainly uh, certainly going to change the scope in, in a lot of areas. Well, let, let's say you are Kevin Kisner. Let's let's just say you were paired with DeChambeau and you're on a par four and you've got a four iron in, in your hands for your approach. And he's down there with a little half wedge. in. I mean, at some point, and I know these are the best players in the world and, and it's their, the game they play is a completely different level than anyone listening to this podcast. But at some point it's got to start wearing on you a little bit. You know, you're like, this guy's oh, there's, 150 there's no yards question. in front of me because, you know, also it's, it's a little drier in November than it is in April. So if he's hitting the ball 330, 340, he's going to be catching some of these slopes that heretofore really didn't come into play on a regular basis. I mean, you might be downwind and Rory might really catch one in the screws or, well, you know what I mean, catch one right and bomb it down there and catch that slope and run out another 40 or 50 yards. But the length he's talking about and how far he's hitting the ball right now, he's bringing a lot of those slopes into play on just about every hole now. Number number two is a perfect example. Number nine, I mean, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> and uh, Nathan, the, the, the modern uh, youthful phrase you're looking for is middling it. That's what my son says. Okay, well, there you go. Like, yeah, he probably doesn't know the like? screws you used know, to be in the driver. Hit, well, yeah, I haven't hit the ball in the middle of the club face in a long time, so that's a really foreign deal. Middling it. Yeah, if you're, if you're a Kevin Kisner or, or somebody and you're paired with a guy like DeChambeau, then you have to just retreat within your own game, and you cannot let that type of thing uh, affect you. Now, that's easier said than done. I mean, I've got the mental strength of a pup tent and a, you know, and a tornado. So, I mean, I get it. I mean, I would just, it would be difficult, but, uh, these guys, um, they, they have to just, they have to play their own game and realize, you know, somebody told me years ago, you play the golf course. You don't necessarily play your opponent unless of course you're or something like that. But on Sunday afternoon, it's going to absolutely be, you know, paramount in your mind if, if you're always 50 60 100 150 yards behind your opponent which is just baffling you know as far as even guys like kevin kisner hit it i mean they hit it a mile and i've seen this guy hit it up close and and uh it's amazing it sounds different when these guys hit the ball but to, to think that there's even so many different levels beyond it's it's hard to hard to get your head around well, the flip side of that, going back to the discussion about the, the galleries or the lack thereof and, and the crowd noise, you know, when DeChambeau hits one 380 and there's not a throng of people to go, woo, you know, mashed potato or whatever, you know. Yeah. I mean, is it is a little bit of yeah, a no mental question. letdown for him? I mean, you know, everybody talks about his, his mental game, and he himself has even said he's a little OCD. <laughs> well, if he's not getting feedback, you know, and he's crushing it out there, I mean, do you – it is, is it a little bit off-putting maybe? I, I don't know. I guess you'd have to get inside his head and 
who knows, but that, which is a place I don't want to go, man. I, I could think of a lot of places I'd like to go. I'd like to break down a lot. I'd like, I'd love to know what happens inside of, like I said, Jack Nicholas's head or Tiger's head. I, I think, uh, you know, it might look a little bit uh, like a uh, Stephen King novel in Bryson DeChambeau's uh, <laughs> under the curtain there. I, I don't, I don't even know how to interpret that, but, uh, no. And, and um, I, I, he who, probably who wouldn't disagree based on some of the interviews I've seen with him, uh, that, that uh, he just has so much going on up there that it can be a little, <clears throat> a little confusing sometimes. But um, you know, lastly, our last chip in the Masters Ball, uh, and we will. Um, I know we've got uh, our guest is on hold on the other line, so we'll go over this one pretty quick. But you know, there's discussion about having a separate golf ball just for the Masters, just to protect the Masters. And and I think back to oh, 15 years ago when Jack Nicklaus said they need to <clears throat> slow down the ball, they need to roll the ball back, and everybody kind of said, oh, well, whatever, and I'm going to brush it aside. And, you know, time, history will probably look back and say that he was right, that they it, if at least needed to maybe slow it down a little bit, if not roll it back, quote-unquote. But, I mean, how practical is it to have a golf ball to be played in one tournament, one time of year, that, I mean, the players, not who, at who, all. who's going to go for that? All. It's a, it's, I, I, that's, um, that's probably, wow. That's like the single bullet theory. It's awful. I mean, I, I, I nobody would, uh, would get behind that for a bunch of different reasons. Um, because to me, you might end up giving, uh, in your attempt to level the playing field, you might end up giving someone, you know, a significant advantage uh, that wouldn't normally have one. So I, I think we have to, as much as, you know, it's as hard as it is sometimes, I think we have to have faith in the uh, um, in the USGA and, and, and those guys to regulate the ball, because I'm with you at some point, it's going to reach um, diminishing returns or you're going to, it's just going to be silly. I mean, you know, I mentioned my son, my son is uh, 17 and uh, it is nothing for him to hit a pitching wedge, you know, 150 yards. And, you know, at, at some point you have to ask yourself, you know, where does it, where does it go? Because then it's kind of strange, you know? So, uh, I mean, I'm not as up on this as you are. What currently we have regulations on the balls and they're playing within those, but is it just the DeChambeau factor we're dealing with now? I mean, there haven't been any changes to the regs on the drivers. Uh, the three woods are still a little unregulated and hot, um, you know, but, you know, is there something that's happened recently that I didn't know about? I, I um, think, well, I think it goes back to when they um, kind of allowed the manufacturers, and, again, and this is a topic for a whole other podcast, but they allowed the manufacturers to kind of push that envelope. And I think with good intentions of getting more people involved in the game, you know, everybody wanted to, wanted to hit the long ball, you know, and so I think they did that to try to get more people involved and it just kind of got out from under them. And I don't think there was any ill intent. I think it was, it was with all the, the good intentions in the world. But, uh, I think once you get that genie out of the bottle, it's yeah, maybe impossible to get back in. I mean, what are we talking about? Are we going to roll back to the, uh, 1980, Titleist professional? Or are we going to, I mean, is it a Haskell? Or are we talking about a feathery? I mean, what are we going to do to try and, and, and slow it down? But you got a percha. Uh, yeah. Right. So, you know, then we start changing clubs. I guess at some point, we're just going to have to see what happens this year. If Shambo or somebody goes out there, and we keep talking about him because he's the hot player right now, but if somebody goes out there and shoots, you know, 30 under par 
you know, for for the round and just runs away from it, then I think they're going to have to sit down and, and have a serious discussion about what to do. Right, because you really you, you, you reach a point where you can't build golf courses long enough or you build golf courses that just to make them competitive for that small percentage of players, especially if these are you know top tier courses. Uh, that that they become virtually unplayable for everybody else, and uh, I, I I happen to I don't like it when you hit a golf course and every par three is a is is a, is a minimum of 190. Right. You know right. I I I, I, li- I like that 115 yard shot every once in a while. Yeah. So it's it's going to be it's going to be a, a challenge. But uh, no, as far as a special ball for the Masters, uh, I, even with the clout and the um, the prestige and, and the weight that Augusta National and the Masters brings to the game. I think, I think even the majority of the Masters members and uh, the Augusta members and you know players would say, no, that's a that's a rotten idea. I, I, I don't. Where is that being pushed from that you're aware of? Uh, I just see it popping up in different forms of media and a few different writers and it, it, they're just kind of floating the ice. I, I look at it as a trial yeah. balloon. They're just kind of seeing what reaction they get from it. But, you know, maybe we'll ask Billy about that. Um, as I said, we have Billy Fuller is on the other line. He's on hold. We're going to take right. a quick commercial break. We'll be back with Billy Fuller to talk about the Fall Masters and everything else right after this. In 2013, the U.S. government began shutting down programs to cut costs. But closing one secret Department of Defense program in America's biggest city set loose one of America's darkest secrets. Now the CIA, DOD, and foreign agents are scouring New York City, racing against each other to find one man who could have all the answers 60 years after his death. Vincent Vino, a thriller by Nathan Grace. Available now in print and ebook from Moonbay Media. Now for the second half of the Lipouts podcast, and our guest who's graciously been on hold is now live with us. As I mentioned earlier, he uh, was the superintendent at Augusta National back in the early to mid-80s, is now a golf course architect and a fellow member of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And now that we have a a master's in the fall, I thought it would be great to have him come in here and and share his unique insight. Uh, That's Billy Fuller. Hey, Billy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Nathan. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you carving some time out to be here. I want to introduce you to Landon Petty, my co-host. Landon, are you still there? I am. I am. Billy, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too, Landon. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This is a real treat for me. uh, uh, Nathan knows this, but I got a chance to play the golf course in in, uh, 2008 and, uh, you know, just bucket list type thing. So uh, being superintendent there, probably uh, I'm, I'm really, really fascinated to hear some of you, some of your stories. 
<laughs> well, it was uh, an honor to be there and a, a great time in my career. So wouldn't have traded it for anything. You know, we were talking, and I don't have the exact dates in front of me, and that's bad show prep on my part, but I think you started in 81 and were there until 86. Is that right? That is correct. I was hired in March of 81, was a sort of a spectator through the 81 Masters and started uh, formally work there the day after the 81 Masters. So you were there, you were there when Nicholas won his sixth jacket in 86 then? Yes, uh, Jack, Jack um, I actually got to spend a lot of time with Nicholas before going to Augusta. My last uh, stop before Augusta as a superintendent was at Kiowa Island, and that's where I met Jack and Bob Cup was his senior designer. They came in to design Turtle Point. So uh, Jack made like 14 site visits in 18 months at uh Turtle Point and really got to spend a lot of quality time with him and later learned, I think I'd been at Augusta a couple of years that I learned that uh, he was very instrumental in recommending me for that position. He was close to Hort Harden. Mr. Harden was the club chairman at the time, a past USGA president and really good player. And Jack had, he had called Jack. And so Jack was part of the recommendation um, Funny story about Jack. He would come in the week before the Masters every year and play golf for three or four days with members. Um, he'd skip that event before the Masters week and just practice at Augusta. And I got a call my first uh, year there from Mr. Harden. Uh, it was on Monday morning of that week before the tournament. And he said, look, Jack's going to be at the Butler cabin uh, at uh, nine o'clock on Friday morning, I want you to pick him up. He's going to ride the golf course with you and he's going to tell you which limbs need to be pruned from the back <laughs> tees. And, and, and that, that's, that is very true. So, so every, every Friday morning before master's week, I would pick Jack up and we would ride the golf course together for you know, an hour or two. And, and it was true. He always found a limb or two that needed to be pruned and the cherry picker immediately came out and took care of it. So it, it was, but the, the relationship with Jack was very special for me. I, I really uh, enjoyed it. And thinking about the 86 Masters um, uh, has a lot of fond memories. He, um, when we were riding around that Friday before, you know, he had that giant, I think it was a McGregor mallet yes. kind of putter. The zero yes. response. He, um, I, I was watching him from the, the Azaleas while he was practicing that week. And he was, um, it, it was pretty amazing to watch him play that week uh, as he was practicing because he was hitting the ball so well and, and putting incredibly well. And so when we were riding around, I, uh, Jack knew that I was at that point, I had given Augusta a six month notice that I was going to leave right after that tournament and join Bob cup in the design world. And, and, Jack and I talked about that quite a bit, and he was really excited for me and for Bob. And uh, But at some point towards the end of the round, I, I told him, I said, you know, Jack, I've always wanted to ask you a question. And he said, anything. What's that? And I said, well, what's the difference between a 62 and a 72 in a round of golf for you? And I don't know if you guys would guess the answer, but the answer was very quick how good my misses were. 
Yeah. And yeah. and uh, it was interesting. You know, he he told me, I don't remember the percentages, but he told me that he hit a certain percentage of shots that went exactly as he had calculated them to go. And there's another percentage, a smaller percentage, that were, were going to be missed to some degree. And he said, if I have a good day with my misses, I might shoot in the low 60s. And, uh, you know, I never thought about it that way. No, that's the, absolutely the precision, true. The precision, yeah. yeah it's yeah. completely different. I had the I good guess fortune. The element, the element of luck... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was. I had the good fortune when I was in a previous life when I was working as an, an assistant uh, golf professional uh, to work at a club in Louisville, Kentucky, and the the assistant pro there, the first assistant, was an extremely good player. Uh, nothing on the level of of Nicholas, obviously, but a very very good player. And he used to say that all the time: is that the the main difference between him. And, you know, the rest of us on the staff were, you know, the good shots were just as good, but his misses were a lot better than our misses. And, uh, you know, so that, <laughs> that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, I, I'm glad you told that story, uh, Billy, because I was really, I was curious uh, as to what would be the process for an interview process for the superintendent job at uh, Augusta National. And uh, uh, that's great to hear that uh, you got a, a glowing recommendation from, from the Golden Bear. That, that, that probably had to carry a lot of weight. <laughs> well, and there was, there was one other person who offered my name, uh, and he was like a family member to me, uh, a gentleman named Monty Moncrief, and he was the USGA Green Section uh, person for the Southeast at the time. And I had known Mr. Moncree for years. And when the U.S., he would come in to courses I had uh, worked at and be, a, a, you know, consulting for the USGA. And so Mr. Moncrief and I would always talk in mid-December of every year to wish each other Merry Christmas and talk about family. And, and we were that close that we did that. Well, that 1980, mid-December, we're talking on the phone and as we get ready to hang up, he said, Billy, I have one other thing to tell you. And I said, yes, sir. And he says, you're going to get a phone call in the middle of January. It's going to change your life. Wow. And that's all he, and that is all he said. He laughed and said, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and, and, you know, I hung up and thought, okay, whatever. You know, you don't, you don't think I actually, at that point in time, I had shared with Bob Cutt my desire to get into the, the golf course design business. I had gone through construction and grow in of several courses, met four designers and, and really said, man, that's what I would love to do in this industry. I know it's hard to get into, but I shared it with Bob. Bob and I had become very close during the, the Kiowa job. And so he encouraged me to put together a, a portfolio and, and knock on some doors. And I had that about 90% ready to go knock on doors when, when that phone call came in mid-January. Uh, so it, it, it wasn't all, I, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina on, and played golf since I was seven years old with my dad on a little nine hole golf course that, um, I don't know, maybe it had three or four bunkers on it. It was, it was extremely low budget. So my concept of golf course maintenance was zero <laughs> as uh, growing up, even, even as I got in college, it was zero because I, I was studying civil engineering uh, math and physics and chemistry was sort of easy to me. And I thought, well, I had a, an uncle who was a mentor who was a civil engineer from Cornell. And I thought, well, I'm going to give that a try. And, and for three years, I did that. The grades were fine, but I absolutely was not enjoying it. 
and I, I, wa I walked down to my advisor's office at the end of the, the, my third year, and I dropped out. And I was very despondent, wasn't sure what I was going to do. And as I walked across campus, I ran into a guy named Keith Perry. And Keith and I grew up playing golf together as kids. And he had been there three years in agronomy school, and I'd been there three years in civil engineering across campus from each other at NC State and never saw each other once until that day. And we sat down at lunch and I told him my sad story and he told me he was going to be a golf course superintendent. And I listened to that and I thought, Keith, you're telling me you're going to do what the guy, the guy did back home. There was one maintenance person on the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, you know, old Joe about killed himself out there. And, and Keith laughed. He said, Billy, there's more to it than that. And as he explained it to me, I, at about four in the afternoon, I looked at him and I said, okay, let me get this straight. I can go to the golf course every day and get paid. And, and he said, and play golf on top of that. And I went straight back to my advisor's office. I left him in tears that morning. I come back with this big grin on my face and, and he looks at me and says, what, what the heck happened? And I said, I figured it out. And, and, you know, had I not run into Keith that day, guys, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. That's that's a great that's a great story. I, I, that's funny because I was just thinking that uh, Nathan and I have known each other a long time, and I think either one of us, if we got a phone call right before Christmas that said we would get a phone call in mid January that would change our lives, our immediate thought would be by the IRS. So um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I I would immediately go to yeah, you know, so, is my will um, all situated? You know, do I what? what <laughs> Make sure all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted. I'd start pouring through my last seven years of tax returns, you know, seeing exactly what I deducted where and how. So, but, uh, no, that's 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 really great. So, uh, yeah, that that '86 was a really really neat year, uh, and and you know, I've always been fascinated with that putter, which is interesting because you may know this. Did he putt with that putter a lot? after that or prior to that or was it kind of a one-off because it was such a it, it never caught on you know uh, as far as i'm aware but what do you know about that if anything Bill? yeah you know i'm not sure how long he used it um landon I, i'm sitting here thinking and and I, I honestly do not know it'd be an interesting question to to ask jack because I, i've never heard it I, I i didn't pay enough attention prior to it i was getting ready for a master's. So I wasn't watching much golf on TV. And uh, so I, I'm not sure. That's a good question though. You know, I, I so had one of those you, putters. I, I had one of those putters at, after he won the masters. Uh, I had, you know, I'm well, 14 at the time, maybe. Yeah. 86. So I'm about 14 and I had been saving up some money, you know, mowing lawns, shoveling snow in the winter and that type of thing in Indiana. And I went out and bought one of those putters. I want to say it was called a ZT zero twist because it was so large and it's so you wouldn't twist offline coming through impact. And, um, they had a silver one and they had a black one and I had the black one and I loaned it to a buddy who went out and played golf, got mad, slammed it into the ground and bent the hosel. And when I tried to bend it back, it broke. So, you know, I was so excited. I had this putter that Jack Nicholas had and then my buddy, you know, essentially broke it. But yeah, no, it, I remember that, that putter was, was huge for a while. I don't know how long he continued to play it, but that was probably, it had to be the number one selling putter that McGregor ever made. I'm, I'm sure with that boost, you know, that it got from that, um, that win and which was just, you know, one for the ages, but 
Billy, let me let me ask you this. You you would know better than all of us. I mean, with a with a November Masters this time of year. Uh, I mean, you were there. You were obviously doing something very different uh, on the golf course. You know, at this time of year than they're doing now. What what, what is your? Tell us what you think about uh, what's going on and how the course is going to play. I mean, just I'm, I'm fascinated with with this because I think it's going to be a really really unique and interesting tournament for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, I would agree with you. I, um, you know, when I think back about my five years there preparing for, you know, for the, for the fall season, I always broke the seasons down into the, uh, you know, the summer was projects. So you were, you were spending money and rebuilding things and, then you overseeded, and I always said that started the members season because once you overseeded, you're just focused on members. And when you get into the, the winter, uh, you get into the tournament season as well as members because you're preparing for the tournament. Well, the overseeding is the beginning of preparing for the members to come in. And you're going to put seed down between September 15th and September 20th normally. And the members are going to walk in. When I was there, they walked in the second uh, Wednesday of October. So you got that short window to get the ryegrass germinated and established and mowed a couple of times. And then the members walk in. Well, the members were very understanding that the ryegrass was young, the height of cut. I mean, I always typically, my first height of cut on the rye was about five eighths of an inch. And I might get it to a half an inch by the time the members got there or some years because, and this is the thing that I think is going to have the biggest impact, if anything, is going to make it different. How much Bermuda grass is coming back and competing with the ryegrass? I had one year, we were overseeding, uh, we were pre-germinating seed in January and, and hand-throwing hand it in areas, mat, using a verticutter mat away out in fairway areas because Bermuda, it stayed in the mid eighties till Christmas and the Bermuda kept pushing and choking the ryegrass out. So, hmm. you know, even though you scalp it, you do all the things you do, you, you know, I did not have growth regulators of the type that we have now to, on the Bermuda grass. Uh, how much that has helped the maintenance program to control the Bermuda um, certainly helped prior to putting seed down. But once you put the seed down, you're, you're just trying to get grass to grow and that ryegrass to grow. So if I, I can tell you that in my time there right now, uh, your plan really on 70 percent Bermuda grass, 30 percent ryegrass, the ryegrass stripes up. You, if you if you flew over it in an airplane, it would be beautiful. You would see the striping, but the ryegrass is totally immature. It doesn't mature till mid-February. So, so if, if the Bermuda grass is the dominant grass today, and, and you know, I oversee it at a rate certainly a lot less than they do now, um, maybe. I, I'm not sure, but I, I'm going to guess that. Uh, we, we'd put down about 400 pounds per acre. I, I, I would, no telling what they put down, especially the things that they may have done differently this time because of having a, a November Masters. So I, I, I haven't talked to Brad Owens. I don't know what they did. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not aware of how they would have done anything differently. But to me, 
if the Bermuda grass were allowed to do its normal thing this year, this time of the year, and you didn't get any frost, that Bermuda is the dominant grass right now. And, and to me, the golf course is going to play longer and slower if that were the case. Yeah, that's a great yeah, point. That, that, that's it, something that I haven't heard uh, anybody talk about is is the Bermuda because it's been unseasonably warm in the southeast. Um, I mean, it was in the 80s uh, here yesterday. So, uh, you know, that that's a great point, Billy, something I never, I didn't think about because we, we were discussing earlier, you know, it's going to be a little cooler. You know, the air is going to be, you know, the ball maybe not fly quite as much. But I didn't really think about with this little bit warmer weather if that Bermuda is still lurking down in there. I mean, I know back in – Oh, maybe a month or so ago when they were scalping everything down, somebody posted a picture uh, before they started the overseas. Somebody posted a picture on social media uh, from an airplane or a drone or I, I don't know what it was. And everything was just brown because they just scalped out all the Bermuda grass. And uh, it, it caused a panic in social media because everybody thought, oh, my God, what's happened to the to Augusta? Um, and, of course, you know, obviously that it's not going to look like that when the when they tee it up. But um, that Bermuda hanging on yeah, that, could, could be an impact. Yeah. You know, when you're pre- prepping for overseeing, every year that I prep, we verticut aggressively uh, the couple of weeks prior. Uh, scalped it. We used a street broom on the front of a tractor and stood the Bermuda up. The last step we did was that and then left it like that and put the seed down and then ran the mowers over dry grass and it would it would chop off the grass that the street broom had stood up and that would be a kind of a, a layer of insulation to hold moisture against the seed, those oh. clippings over top of the seed. and And so it was brown at that point, I mean, September sure. 15th to 20th, when we put that seed down, the place was brown. But Bermuda grass, you know, it, when it's warm, it, it's hard to keep it. The only, the only thing I'm not sure is how much growth regulators could have impacted how that Bermuda would act after overseeding. Right. And no, so, yeah. Uh, but, but I, I mean, so... How are you going to get the density with the rocking grass? Well, you put it down at a huge rate, maybe, and just have more density of, of immature plants so close together that they're giving you the canopy you need, or are you relying on the Bermuda to do what I relied on it to do? I just don't know what they are doing, but it's an, it's going to be interesting. Uh, somebody said that, oh, uh, my, my, uh, my, um, uh, design associate Eric Belgum said to me this morning that McElroy had some comments yesterday on uh, last night on TV about the fairways. And I, did you guys hear anything about that? No, uh, no, I did not. Uh, that'd be interesting to see uh, yeah. what he has to say. Uh, and, and the longer and slower is is a fascinating thing to me to help. You know, like what Nathan and I were discussing earlier was mitigating. You know, some of these um, some of these monster tee shots and, and, and how that would affect it. Because I know as a, as an amateur golfer, I enjoy, I enjoy watching a, a challenging golf course. And I mean, this is a course that these guys know well and have played, uh, and, and it's, it's challenging, but it's fair. It's, it's not like some of the, some of the other setups and prior other tournaments that you see, they're just clearly no fun because it can't be, they're hard to watch because they can't be any fun for the players, you know, but, uh, that'll be, a uh, I didn't think about it in that, context but it, that will make a difference and it should be really really fun to watch 
Do you see anything changing with the greens, or uh, you know, the, your your thoughts are primarily around you know the first cut and and the fairways? I, I think green. <clears throat> you know, this time of year, bent grass is uh, it's very positive for gr the growing environment this time of the year for the bent. And so I don't see any reason why the greens would not be as good as they would be in the spring. It's certainly bent grass, as the days get shorter, the amount of growth you get is less. And where in the springtime, it's warming up and the growth is more aggressive. But I think the difference is you don't have to work as hard in November to get them, as fa get them fast as you might have to work in April, keep them fast. That's a great if point. That makes sense. No, that 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 no, does, that, does. that makes a great point. And you know, are we going? I, I should know the answer to this, but are they going to have the twenty twenty one Masters in April? I mean, isn't that the plan? They're to kind of get back to the the schedule. So, I mean, talk about a pretty quick turnaround uh, from November and then to have it again in April. But of course, with no galleries, there's going to be less a lot less wear um, on the golf course. And that's another thing, Billy. We were discussing that is. Uh, a little earlier before you came on to me such a big part of the masters even just watching it on tv is especially on saturday and sunday on the back nine you hear these roars coming back up from 16 and, and back in that part of the golf course and they just echo and they ride like a tidal wave and they come up those fairways to the clubhouse and and go all over the golf course you know not having those galleries not having those roars that's got to have an impact on the players as well yeah, you know, the only thing I think about when you mention that, I, I have to believe they're getting used to it now. You know, they've had a few months of playing in that type of environment. And I wonder if that's not going to, um, you know, is, is it, does it help them uh, uh, now that they've gotten used to it? Uh, certainly it, it takes away an element of, of uh, the mystique of Augusta and the impact that the gallery has, but you know, it is what it is now. <laughs> that's, that's right. And well, uh, I, I tend to think, well, my thoughts were that the, the, uh, the different look of the golf course without the, the framing of all of the, uh, the patron seating and the stands and a lot of the things that, that, that shape the way it looks during the tournament uh, it's going to be dramatically different. And that's something I go back to when I, when I played, I remember thinking, wow, that doesn't look like I thought it would, but my context was watching it on television, you know, loaded with people and, and stands and such. So I wonder if that's good. Like for uh, the shot coming into 15 to me is really what I, I keep thinking about. Um, because you're, you're hitting into, you know, the middle, it's almost like you're hitting into the end zone. You know, you've got this, this, this throng of people in stands on either side of you and such. So I wonder, what do you, what do you think about that? Well, it, it's certainly going to have a different look and focus for the players. Um, you know, it I, I, it was always funny to me how many times golf balls um, uh, either hit someone's chair or whatever, and comes. You know, they right. get the advantage of the ball coming back. Well, right. they're not going to get that advantage this time. It's just going to keep going if it goes <laughs> right or left. So, and, you true. know, may, maybe it's going to play to their disadvantage in some cases. But that's all part of the element of luck. And, yeah, and, and the aesthetics part of the game is going to be different this time. And and I'm, I, it's really cool that you got to play it, Landon, because you're going to appreciate, you know, that, that element of it so much better now.
Yeah, well, and I actually played it in February, and it was very cold. So um, I, I uh, remember um, some of the shots that I hit, and I was at the time playing a lot of golf and playing pretty well. And uh, remember thinking, "Wow, that's uh, that's a lot tougher shot than than it looks like." You know, than it, than it looks like it should be. You know, when you watch on television. So uh, it's going to be fun to watch. I, I told uh, Landon yep. earlier, Billy, that. Um, maybe CBS will do like they do with NFL games and they'll pipe in some fake crowd noise uh, when you're watching it on TV. <laughs> so at least, it, at least, because if you, if, if you were watching those first NFL games and I remember I was, the very first game I saw this season was a Patriots game and it was, it was uh, in, uh, it was the home, home game for the Patriots. And I was listening to the crowd. I was like, wow, well, I didn't, that sounds a lot more than 25% capacity, which was what they were doing in some, some stadiums. And then, uh, you know, a guy ran in for a touchdown and they had a, a camera on the field. It was getting a shot of him and you could see the stands. There wasn't a soul in the stands and, and it <laughs> dawned on me, Oh, they're pumping this in. Um, so that it doesn't, but if you were just watching those NFL games without that ambient noise, it would seem so weird. So I wonder if maybe there won't be a little bit of crowd noise pumped in from time to time. So, it, it so, would be interesting. I, I, I can't picture Augusta National uh, using fake noise, but maybe they will. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm with Billy on that one. I, I, I'm in that camp, but I don't, I don't see it happening. You know. Um, well, uh, I, but, I think uh, obviously the, the big stories are going to be, you know, it's a fall masters. How's the golf course going to be different? Uh, it's in a, in a pandemic, you know, how, how do the, all these things play? in the uh, in the plane of the tournament DeChambeau is favored you know coming off a big win at the u.s open and you know he's flying the ball 403 yards uh is what he posted on instagram billy i don't know if you heard about that but he posted a picture of a launch monitor where he's flying the ball 403 yards with no carry and uh i mean that's it's, just it's with a stamp with no roll yeah with that, no roll. with, with no roll at all I mean, that's, that's disgusting. And, uh, but the, uh, and then of course, Tiger, you know, coming back to defend. So, I mean, we've got a lot of great storylines. I'd be curious to see, um, how they all fall out in, in, I mean, it's, we were just talking about earlier. It's hard to believe here we are. This is the Monday of master's week. It'll be here before you know, it. it just, it kind of snuck up on everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you never know when any of these players, I mean, you guys are, are, are you, you've played golf to a good level and you know that if, if some of these guys get into a zone, it doesn't matter whether they have a seven iron or a wedge in their hand, they may be right. knocking pins down. So you could have someone come out of the shadows and, and play really great golf and, and beat a DeChambeau. It's, and it's going to be fun. I hope it's a really, I hope come Sunday, there's a match there, at least a match. Oh, I, I agree. agree. I agree. I, I hate see it. You know, I, uh, watching in 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 '97 uh, when Tiger, I think he won by 12. He ran away with it. Yeah. Um, that was that was fun for a lot of reasons, but uh, I much prefer, you know, watching those guys really, really have to get after it and and, and play the game under the most difficult conditions. Uh, it, it, yeah. It, that's when it's fun. Well, that well, was... let me ask you this. I. I have a friend who, uh, when I was in the golf course management business for a while, uh, my superintendent and I, we would play periodically and it was always tough to play with him because he would, he was so focused on all the things that he saw wrong, 
you know, on the course that needed to be fixed. Uh, you mentioned, you know, when you were at Augusta, did you get to, you know, did you ever get to unwind and just play the golf course or were you constantly, you know, on that, uh, that, that high, high tension, high tension wire <laughs> in terms of how you thought about what was going on? You know, I got into the golf business because of my love for the game. When my buddy told me about the possibility of working on the golf course, the first thing I thought about was I get to play some really good golf courses. I, I never dreamed of being at Augusta National, never even crossed my mind. Um, it just is one of those things that happened, and, and it was a lot of good fortune that it happened because the other piece of it was I had I sort of, I sort of followed the bent grass trail from from um, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, down to Columbia, South Carolina. At Kiowa, Nathan, did we, we lose him? No, oh, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so, so we, um, you know, that that was a piece of when they were going to convert greens to bent grass. That was a big piece of, of of my opportunity. But playing the game was a really big deal. So while I was there. Uh, at least once a week, sometimes a couple of times a week, uh, if it wasn't crowded with members after four o'clock, my assistants and I would go out and play nine holes. And it might be that we tee off on number four and, you know, play, play a few holes and skip to the back, depending on where members were. But yes, I played golf and I loved playing golf wherever I was working because I saw the place from the golfer's perspective. And, and yes, I had my notebook. And uh, when I played, if I saw something that, you know, that I thought needed tweaking, then we made note of it. So it was a great way to spend time with my assistants and a great way to evaluate the golf course. No, I, I agree. And I've known so many superintendents uh, who, who are actually very good golfers, but the superintendents who play golf and, and want to get out there and play, uh, I, I really do think it gives them an advantage over the the superintendents who don't play golf. And I think that's becoming an increasingly smaller number now, but the, when you get out there and you play it and you see what the members see, then it makes all the difference in the world to kind of go in there and dial some things in and make those tweaks that, that if you were just riding around looking at it, that you might not notice as you, as you would when you're playing it. Absolutely. Well, Billy, Absolutely. we, uh, I have appreciated your time here. I'm glad you could carve out, little time i think we're all in agreement that a fall masters is going to be uh must see tv and uh, I, I know i'll be tuning in can't wait to see what happens with uh, the dechambeau story and the tiger story and and just all the different things that are tied into this year's masters and we appreciate your insight uh into it and, and spending some time with us here it was a pleasure nathan and nice to uh, meet you too landon you guys take care and enjoy the week that is another episode of the Lip Outs podcast. So for Billy Fuller and Landon Petty, I'm Nathan Crace saying we'll see you here the next time we tee it up on the Lip Outs podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Watermark Golf Media. All rights reserved.